But I do want to take a moment to just highlight a few things and challenge us to think about a few of the, the key topics that were brought up in that chapter. And then we'll flesh the rest of those out in our groups. But let's open with a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Lord God, we're so grateful just for this time to be together as men to encourage one another in the faith and to be iron sharpening iron. And we, we need that. We confess that we desperately need you. We need the body of Christ. Uh, we need your word to do its work in us. Uh, we desire to be godly men, uh, men who love our wives well and our children, men who guard our hearts and our minds from sin. And we thank you for this this book that's a tool uh, to that end to help us think on key issues that Scripture highlights that we might walk in faithfulness. And we pray that our conversation today, our fellowship, and our discussion uh, would would be used by you in us to conform us to your will and to the image of Christ. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, there's just some some key truths that I want to highlight. Um, some of them, some of them are directly from the the chapter. Some of them are are related, but not directly mentioned. And I'm, I'm going to walk through these quickly. I'm not going to preach a full sermon, but I just want us to have these in mind as we go into our discussion. And so I want to give you a few key truths. <laughs> Truth number one is that you cannot trust your heart. You cannot trust your heart. And this is so important for us to understand. When our our hearts which show up in our thoughts, uh, speak to us, because it's an internal discussion, it feels safe. It feels like, hey, this is a friend that I can trust. The Scriptures warn us not to do so. Proverbs 14, 12, There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. That means the man legitimately thinks he's walking in the right way. I don't know if you've ever been lost in the woods. Anybody ever been lost in the woods? I have. It's not a fun experience uh, to be legitimately lost in the woods. But when you're lost in that situation, you're lost because at some point you genuinely thought you were walking in the correct direction. And you do that for a while until all of a sudden nothing looks familiar. I thought I was going to hit a road by now. I didn't hit a road. I thought I was going to, and suddenly the realization sits in I've been going the complete wrong way. This, is, this can happen in life. We trust our hearts. It seems to you in that moment, this is right, this is good, but it says its end is the way of death, potentially. <clears throat> of course, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else <clears throat> and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? The answer comes in verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. God alone truly knows our hearts, and we... We need Him to test our hearts and to reveal to us what is there. And then, of course, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This is one of my favorite examples where Paul says in verse 3, To me it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. For I'm conscious of nothing against myself, yet I'm not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. What, what Paul says is, I, I'm not currently aware, my conscience is not bothering me about anything that I've done. So I'm not aware of anything, but I also realize that just because I'm not aware of it doesn't mean that there's not something wrong. I need the Lord to test my heart and to reveal it. 
And so that's just a fundamental reflex that we need to have if we're going to walk in godliness, and that is we cannot trust our hearts. Therefore, we need to be suspicious of our hearts and constantly testing our hearts. Truth number th- number two, you must train your heart. Train your heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Watch over your heart with all diligence. This is, this is a process of training. We train our hearts with the Word of God. And this is why the fundamentals of the Christian life are fundamentals. When you, when you as a believer, you know this in your Christian life, when you stop reading the Word, when you stop, or you may keep reading it, but you stop really thinking about what you're reading, you don't let it affect your heart, or you, you stop meditating on the Word, you stop spending time in prayer, you begin to stray. Old sins come back into life. They become more difficult than they were before. Why is that? Because we're moving ourselves away from the tools and the resources, the means that God has given us to train our hearts and to grow. So train your heart with the Scriptures. We're going to talk more throughout this study about how to do that. But right now I'm just talking about these key truths of of the heart. Truth number three, your thoughts reveal your heart. Your thoughts reveal your heart. Titus 1.15 says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. When The way you know what's in your heart is what you allow and tolerate in your mind. Of course, Jesus said, From the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So we can also listen to the words we're allowing to come out of our mouth to really know what's in our heart. But you know, before words are formulated on our tongue, they're formulated in our mind. It's ultimately, even before we speak those words, our heart is revealing itself between our ears and our mind. And so the content of your thought life tells the true story of your heart. So the obvious question is, what's the content of your thought life? What do you allow? We often think that the content of our mind is separate. I've I've talked to men with some frequency who, because they're not outwardly expressing sexual sin, they believe they're walking in purity. But when you talk to them about what they allow between their ears, they are not walking in purity. The Scriptures are clear that what we think about is laid bare before the Lord. He sees it all. And he, He demands that we walk in purity and pursue purity even down to the thought level. So what does your thought life reveal about your heart? Truth number four, your heart must be tested for self-deception. Your heart must be tested for self-deception. Now before I address self-deception, which is a huge issue for all of us, I do want to mention that it is also possible to have a conscience that's too strict. It, really, on any issue, it's, it's possible to have a conscience that's too strict on that issue or too loose. So let me just briefly talk about what it looks like to have a conscience that's too strict in the area of sexual sin in particular. I've met with men before who are just weeping in my office, convicted over sexual sin. And as I begin to ask them, well, what's, what's going on? What's happening? It comes out that they're actually 
really winning the battle with sexual sin. It's just they're tempted all day long. And the fact that they're tempted makes them feel as if they're losing the battle. But actually when I ask them, well, what do you do when you're tempted? Well, I, I put that out of my mind and I turn my mind to truth and then I walk in the truth. I say, well, brother, that, we call that a win. Right? You, you, if, you, if you believe that holiness and purity means you get to a place where just, I don't ever even think about it. You know, I, I don't know. Well, sometimes guys will be like, I don't know what's wrong with me. I just don't ever think about those things. And I'm like, I don't believe you. Right. <laughs> you know, I love you, but I don't believe you. And I think you've deceived yourself because we live in a fallen world and we are fallen men. Even though by God's grace we are redeemed, we still have a flesh and it's at war with us every day, all day. So I do want you to know there, there is a difference between seeing and looking. The difference between seeing and looking. He talks a little bit about this in that chapter about is it possible um, you know, to see a pretty woman or something and it, that not be sinful. And he says, well, it's possible, but it's also dangerous. You have to be very careful. But I do want to say, and even as I talk to my son about these things and, and training him, and I encourage you to talk to your sons openly about these things if you, do, if you don't currently. Um, but in a fallen world that's surrounded by sin, that's a, a sensual society that's only getting worse, it's impossible to live in this world and not see things that are sinful. Billboards, commercials that, were un that you didn't expect. Uh, even as fallen men, I call them mental billboards, and that is sometimes a thought will pop in your head. You didn't solicit it. You weren't wanting to think on that, but because we're sinful, and it may be something from your past that was sinful that you've now repented of, but it, boom, there it is, just all of a sudden. I treat those just like passing a billboard on the street. And that is, I, I don't give it any time. It is just as you see something, now I have a choice. The difference between seeing and looking is what you do right now once you've seen. Do I choose to see more, look, or do I immediately when I realize what I've seen, turn my eyes and my mind to truth and walk in purity? You do that mentally when mental billboards pop in your mind, and you do that as you walk through this sinful world and, and you see things that are, that are sinful. But the fact that you are driving down the road and, whoa, all of a sudden there's a billboard there that's explicit, that in and of itself is not sin. That, that sin in the sense of the world seen, it's sinful that that's there, but the sin comes with what you do next. And so I just want to help you with that because some men are just constantly beat down because they live in a fallen world and they're constantly seeing. It's not, it's not that. It's what do you do in that next moment. But while that's, that's true and that can happen, what I think is more dangerous actually for us is the sin of self-deception when it comes to sexual purity. And what I mean by that is thinking that you are pure, but it's because you've deceived yourself and told yourself lies when in fact you are not walking in purity. You've just changed the definitions. And so what happens is you, you sear your conscience over time so that the, the, the warning signal of your conscience either is not as loud as it used to be or even in some cases, if you've done it long enough, it simply doesn't go off when it should go off because you've convinced yourself you're doing nothing wrong. Here's, a, here's an example of how this can happen. 
Let's say you're initially convicted in your conscience over a sin that you've committed. But instead of obeying your conscience, you begin to reason with your conscience. Start talking back to it. You begin to think about the possible negative consequences of obeying your conscience and confessing this sin to your wife or to another man in the church who can help you. It could be that you know that if you confess this to your wife, it's going to hurt her and it's going to be very uncomfortable for you. And so you tell yourself that that you're actually keeping it from her for her good. You don't want to hurt her. You know, nobody wants to hurt their wife. And so you're you're going to love her by not telling her this thing that would hurt her. And you decide it'd be best for all involved if you just confess it to the Lord, deal with it privately, and then move on like nothing ever happened. But you've just seared your conscience. Just a little bit. And you do that over and over and over again. And pretty soon, your conscience won't even go off when you do that. So what are some of the signs of self-deception, particularly in the area of sexual sin? By self-deception, again, I mean you are convinced you're doing well in this area when the reality is you are not. I'm just going to give you, I just wrote down several examples. One, I would say you are struggling with self-deception if you're testing the fences. Testing the fences. Here's what I mean by that. Hopefully, in a world like we have, you have some protection on your devices. You have some, some boundaries in place. Even if you've never struggle with pornography uh, specifically. We're all men in a fallen world. It's wise to have those things in place. But men uh, who are not pure of heart will begin testing those fences, looking for loopholes. Under the, under the guise of, you know, I need to make sure that the system is working. You know, I need to make sure that there's no ways for me to get heard in this, but really what they're doing, if they are honest with themselves, is they're trying to find out, is there a way for me to get through? A way my wife doesn't know about. Are you testing the fences? Number two, if you see loopholes in your fences as opportunities rather than dangers, when you see a loophole in the fence, do you, in your, in your heart, say, oh, there is a way. My wife's going to be out of town, actually, this weekend. Is, is, that, is that how your mind goes? Or when you see a legitimate place that's not protected, does your mind say, oh, man, we got to lock that down immediately because that's dangerous to me, and I don't want to go anywhere near that. You see that? No, at this point, nothing's happened. You haven't looked up anything on the Internet. But you're not pure of heart because you're testing the fences, and when you find a loophole, your flesh says, Hey, that's a good thing. That's not a pure heart. And if you think it is, you've self-deceived. Next, if you've convinced yourself that confession to God each time you commit this sin is sufficient. If you're married, it's not. You need to talk to your wife. You need to confess to your wife. Every time that you commit sexual sin, even if it's in secret, quote-unquote, nothing's really ever done in secret in the eyes of the Lord, You sin against your wife as well as the Lord. So it's not enough in that case to simply confess it to the Lord. And I would say with sexual sin, sexual sin is a stubborn sin. So even if you're a single man, 
If you're struggling with this, you need to have a man in your life that you are confessing to, that you are living in the light with and revealing your sin to if you want to win this battle. This is not one that goes away easily. We need one another. Next, if you think that telling your wife that you struggle with pornography would be more harmful than helpful to your marriage, you're self-deceived. What's most harmful to your marriage is living continually in a hidden pattern of sexual sin. That's what's tearing down your marriage. Being honest with your wife, even though that will be hurtful, is actually a step towards strengthening your marriage and walking in purity. Next, if you've stopped looking at pornography, but you allow yourself to look at women lustfully, you are still not walking in purity. Whether that's women walking by, or if it's we, we get crafty in our sin. Perhaps you stop looking at pornography, but you do look at images that the world doesn't classify technically as pornography, but we all know it's immodesty and you're still sinning in the same way. Another way we self-deceive, if you stop looking at pornography, but you allow yourself to entertain sexual fantasies and images in your head. So there's no actual outward images, but you're creating them. And think that because it's in the safety of your own head, it's fine. That's not a pure heart. Next, if you think singleness is the primary reason you struggle with pornography, you're self-deceived. If you think that's true, and you think that marriage is going to solve your problem with pornography, you are so, so wrong. Because what you have done is you've built up an appetite for the forbidden. You've built up an appetite for something that's not what God created. Pornography is not a substitute for biblical sexuality between a husband and a wife. It's something foreign to what God has made. And so what happens is you, you, you tell yourself, when I get married, this is all going to go away because I'll be able to have intimacy with my wife. Only to find that that might work for a short time, but that doesn't quite do for you the same thing that pornography did because what you realize is that is... That union is holy and good in God's sight. And you haven't been wanting what's holy and good. You've been wanting the forbidden. And so your heart goes back to the rebellious sin, the substitute of pornography. Next, if you think your wife's lack of desire for intimacy or lesser desire than yours is the reason you struggle with pornography. It is not. Pornography is a selfish, self-centered sin and even a, even a wife who we could say has gone as far as being sinfully to the point of sinfully withholding from her husband, while that's a, an issue and needs to be addressed, is never a cause for our sin. And then finally, one more. If you use the marriage bed to fulfill your personal sexual preferences at your wife's expense, you are not a man of purity. What I mean by that is you coerce your wife into participating in activities that she's already told you she finds distasteful or dirty or physically harmful. But you like them, so you keep pushing for them. These are ways we deceive ourselves. I know some of those are very specific, but I want us to understand that we can't let ourselves off the hook just because, by God's grace, we're not at night looking on our computer at pornography. That, isn't, that is not the, the, the biblical standard. That's certainly forbidden, but it goes much further than that to the things we allow in our minds and our hearts. And we want to get to the point that we're fighting the battle on the front lines of our mind and winning the battle there and then looking at stuff on the screen goes away, right? 
I have a lot more to say about that, but I don't want to steal all of our time. Let me just give you a few questions to think about, and then we'll break up into our groups. Four personal questions, and I'm not going to expound on all of these. Just ask the question. Number one, what do your thoughts reveal about your heart in the area of sexual sin? Ask yourself personally, what do my thoughts reveal currently about my heart in this area? Question number two, how extensive is your struggle with sexual sin? How extensive? The reason I ask it that way and not do you struggle is because if you're a man in a fallen world, at some level you struggle. It doesn't mean you're losing the battle. I'm not saying that. But all of us have to fight this. So at what point, what level is your struggle? Question number three, are you a slave to sexual sin. We're going to talk about that in our groups. It's one of the questions. Are you currently enslaved to sexual sin? If you didn't pay close enough attention, go back in your book and read. There, there are 10 common indicators he gives of those who are enslaved. Read those indicators and see if, you, if it's a mirror for your life. Question number four, will you commit to shepherding your heart with truth? Will you commit to shepherding your heart with truth? Essentially, will you commit to killing this? Understand that sexual sin left undealt with will destroy you and dramatically hurt those connected to you. There's a quote from Street's book, Sexual sin has a kind of boomerang effect. The very thing that promised so much excitement in life ends up causing so much death. Physical death may not result, but the fatality of several other important things in life does occur. And I'll end with this admonition. How do you shepherd your heart with truth? We're going to talk in depth about this in coming weeks. But just quickly, let me just give you this little nugget of advice on shepherding your heart with truth. Bring God's Word to the conversation in your head. Bring God's Word to bear on your mental conversations. Think of it this way. If a man asked you to get together at a coffee shop because he wanted your advice on how to be a more godly man, would you bring your Bible to that conversation? I hope so. I hope you would. Why do we not bring the Bible to our inward conversations? Bring the Word of God to bear. You can't trust yourself, but you can trust God's Word. And it provides clarity in the muck of our minds. And sometimes when you, know, when you, if you struggle with sexual sin, then you know it can feel like a cloud. It starts with a clouded mind, a clouded judgment. You break through that cloud when you bring the Word of God to bear in that conversation, even with yourself. So, as we break up into groups, I want to give you two quick assignments. All right. Number one, if the sin of pornography is a personal struggle for you, and you've not confessed it to another brother and asked for help, do that today. Do it today. When I say currently struggling... We're going to define that as, if you've looked at pornography in the last 12 months, we're going to define that as currently struggling. So if that's you, find a brother today. You can come to me if you want to. But find a brother today and confess that sin and ask for help. And we will help you. Number two, pick a daily texting buddy and text him proactively the verse you're mentally using to fight sin that day. I found this to be so helpful in my own personal life. So many other men that I've worked with are the same. Just to have another person that you're every single day 
We're saying, here's the, the sword of God's Word that I'm bringing to my mental battle today. Just that little thing, it's not going to solve everything, but it certainly helps to live life with another believer.